Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending 22nd of October. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear our chat with former Breakfaster Jacinta Parsons all about her new book, Unseen. Uh, Stuart Harrison joined us uh, to chat about uh, Restoration Australia. The new series has just come out on ABC. And uh, Vanessa Holker came in to chat to us about vending machines. They're very old, apparently. And uh, Mon has joined the team. Hello. Welcome, Mon. Hello. Uh, so we're, we're just a little little getting to know Mon. Uh, also, Dr. Jen, Weird Sciencing with us, brought introduced us to new research about women's confidence. Uh, there was a quite terrifying snake chat that we had. And also in the animal universe for feature creatures, Simon Hinckley walked us through the pheromones of moths. Yeah, it was very fun. Hope you enjoy. Triple R. You're listening to Breakfasters on Triple R. We have a uh, special guest. Who is it? Oh, we're here. <laughs> uh, beloved broadcaster Jacinda Parsons began her radio life here as host of Detour and Breakfasters. It can now be heard helming afternoons on ABC Melbourne. The speaker, radio maker, is now author with the publication of Unseen, The Secret World of Chronic Illness, a candid memoir detailing life with an invisible condition. And to tell us about it, the writer and ambassador for the Crohn's and Colitis Association joins us on the line now. Jacinta, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, look at me come back. It's a embrace. (laughs) There it is. Can you feel it? Yeah. Arms reaching out. I'm sorry it's under such unusual conditions. Oh, look, you know, we roll, we're agile, we're pivoting, we're doing all the things you need to do. Don't worry about it. Pivot every But But when you are creating... Well, anything during a global pandemic, it's naturally going to be coloured by it. Did did writing your book in this moment uh, heighten the way you view your own story or have an effect at all? It really, it did because, you know, we went. I went from writing it over the summer to sitting in my bedroom in a chair beside a window writing this book. And I think the pandemic has been such an interesting reflection on what it's actually like to have a chronic illness because all of the features of the pandemic, the fact that it happened suddenly, the fact that you, um, there was, you know, instability in work, Um, You couldn't see people. You were isolated. All of those aspects are exactly what happens often when you get a chronic illness and you are, you know, isolated from friends and family because you can't do stuff like you used to be able to. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease as an adult. Uh, Can you tell what it's like to actually have that disease and what effect it has had on your life? It's been a huge um, impact. There was a particular kind of 10-year period where I couldn't work. Um, I had an ileostomy bag, which is what I talk about in the book. And um, it's a pretty debilitating disease if it's flaring. But um, like a lot of chronic illnesses, it'll go through peaks and troughs. But the, the particular sort of symptoms of it crept up on me when I was in my 20s just a lot of abdominal pain and um, a lot of fatigue, a lot of bone aches, all the sorts of, you know, classic symptoms that could, you know, be ascribed to a lot of things. So, yeah, it was just, um, it was a really tricky time to get a diagnosis as well because you sort of don't quite know what's going on. Mm. Mm. How, uh, you've spent decades now in the in the health system. How are you as a patient? I'm a crap 
patient. <laughs> I wanted to be good. I tried to be good. I want doctors to think I'm really good because you hope that they'll think you're the cool kid in the class and treat you really nicely. But um, I, you know, the, after a long period of time, and it's probably been more like 20 years of waiting rooms and taking medicine a lot, you kind of get tired of it. And so um, I'm pretty crap at taking my medicine the way I should. Uh, just all the things that make you a good patient, I'm not very good. So I try and razzle-dazzle them. You know what mm. I'm saying? Yeah. But, well, you, you write that I would try to look like the sort of person a doctor would be interested in keeping alive. Particular <laughs> <laughs> uh, surgeon that um, I would try my pitter-patter on, you know, a couple of gags, dad gags. You know, I wasn't even reaching very high. <laughs> And nothing would crack him. Uh, nothing would show me that he actually liked me in any way possible. <laughs> and so I tried my hardest because I thought this dude has to care about me. Otherwise, you know, a little scalpel. <laughs> he won't be caring as much as he should. And I think that kind of speaks to that vulnerability that a lot of us feel that if um, we're very much at the mercy of these people who have an enormous amount of power over our our existence. And mm. so that relationship is really important. And there's a lot of advice in there too about how to approach the system. Uh, you know, I'm thinking like when you arrive in a waiting room, you say treat that as the destination. Yes. Um, and also not using, trying not to push through to get what you want by sheer force, I thought was interesting. Well, because it's such a um, it's such an under-resourced system if you're in the public health system. So often you are just, you know, you're having to wait sometimes hours before you see a doctor. So if there's any part of you that resists that, it's going to be a rocky ride. You know, as much as you um, charm the world, uh, you can't get through it any faster often. So I think it's really... It's, it, there's a humility when you are in the health system that you just have to get what you get when you get it. Mm. Yeah. Can we swing back around to the diagnosis and what it took to get that? Because I, I, I liked, um, you know, because you talked about the, the different factors about, how, you know, it taking a long time to get a diagnosis because of your gender and also, um, uh, you know, the socioeconomic background comes into it as well, like you were just talking about um, and how, like, the public health system, like, you know, the first doctor that you went to, uh, it was just they went, oh, yeah, you probably got a, a food allergy mm. and then you kind of go home and and that's it. And so for a lot of people, they wouldn't go any further than that. Um, did Yeah, I guess did you find um, – did it were you kind of – uh, brought in your mind as well, like writing about this? Did you discover, you know, more incidences and stuff? Or did it oh, surprise you? Life. You know, and when you look into the health system, when you talk about inequity, you know, I'm, I'm particularly privileged when it comes to accessing the health system. I have, you know, strong language skills. I'm a white woman. Um, and when you look at the incident of um, the way that particular cohorts in our community fare in the health system, First Nations, people of colour, women, you know, definitely have issue. There is a bias in it and we don't talk about it enough because we hold our health system in such a way. It's, you know, it's um, unconscious but it's there and I think it's really important that we know that the health system isn't the same for every person that walks through those doors. 
What What was your life like uh, in terms of managing your illness while at Triple R? You, you're right that at times I became so sick that I didn't know how I was going to sit there for two hours and present the program. Would how how valuable was Triple R for you during that period? And um, yeah, what how how did you do the show and keep it all together? It's so um, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because Triple R is in this story because it was at a particular point in the health in my health story around it. Triple um, R, as you were, as we all know, is one big, happy, dysfunctional, loving, <laughs> incredible family that. Um, I feel so close to and I went through that experience. It was a workplace, but it was also a place I was volunteering. And so a lot of the time you're really kind of nervous about sharing what's going on because I guess you don't want to be treated differently in a workplace, especially when you love radio and you just want to get in there and be able to do it. Mm. So it was sort of complex at points, not sure how I could share what was going on with me. But of course, as we well know, it's a it's a human kind institution, unlike other workplaces where you are valued for what you bring in, you know, your economic status. And again, you know, the disparity of that in my experience is really, um, really well understood by me. Mm. How do you how do you change your perspective on health uh you know you you're right that at one time you thought of illness as an invasion by a foreign actor and you only had wealth genetic luck and perspective to to, to determine how prepared you were for war how, is it just time is it philosophy do you read is it lots of introspection what goes into having a better approach to your own health? That is such a great question because I think it's all of those things and it's also um, being fully aware that people will take their time in their own certain ways to understand their health experience. And I think individuality um, and how we do it as separate people is really important. So that's why I tried not to do too much advice in the book. It was really just about explaining the dimensions of it. But, yeah, for me, it took me to my lowest points um, possible. You know, I hit the dirt in a really big way. I lost everything. Before I sort of found my way back again through radio, um, I, you know, I had nothing. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And so you're sort of forced to, to really work out you're either going to sink or swim and you've got to find a way that you can, I guess, accept it and live with it. And so there was a very clear moment for me where I thought, all right, if this is, if there's no way out of this, I'm going to be really good at it. You know, I'm going to be a really good sick person. I'm going to rock it. And so I sort of embraced it. But it's something I don't talk about a lot because, you know, we have those really difficult, you know, hero narratives around overcoming. And I think that sometimes can be really complex for people who haven't got to that space or might never get there and don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced since sort of telling people about your illness that people treat you treat you differently and have maintained that even when you've explained it in detail and managed, you know, explained that you've managed to lead a full life that they still can't shake that perception of you as a sick person? Yeah, I think um, it definitely has impacted me. I think because I present very well and at the moment I am well, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to... Um, it's pretty easy to digest for a lot of people. But when you're not coping, I think it's really hard to um, find other identities other than a sick one. And that's the complexity of it as well from a personal perspective, working out who are you? Are you sick? Are you well? How do you understand yourself as you kind of work through the world? 
And you say that in the book as well about not looking sick or like getting a disability concession at, at an event, you know, that, that kind of blowing people's minds, that they can't, can't put two and two together like that. Well, I think that's part of why I wrote this book around the unseen illness, the invisibility of it, because we've, we're, we're pretty rudimentary when we come to assessing each other in the world. And so the nuance of what but you look all right, mm. you know, buck up, um, chin up, there's a whole lot of stuff that, that goes to play when if you look well, you should behave well. And, you know, I did have a disability um, pension for many, many years, and that was really a hard sell sometimes. <laughs> And it's such a Melbourne book. Daryl Summers visited you in a hospital. <laughs> yeah. I'm pumped that you have read this book so closely. <laughs> it's one of the greatest moments of my life. Why are you in a hospital if Daryl Summers is going to be? <laughs> but the main issue was that Aussie wasn't there. You know what I'm saying? To let down. <laughs> And, and, and same street as Chopper and then behind Molly Meldrum's house. I'm like, then you're on Triple R and I see Melbourne. It's a bit of a, mem- it's a memoir to, to Melbourne, it seems, as well. Oh, I found you, that as well. Yeah, yeah. what are you, mayor? <laughs> <laughs> Qualifies you. Um, it's Well, it's it's an incredibly candid book uh, and uh, congratulations. Does it feel like you've drawn a line under it? Is this something that you've been leading up to for a long time? Yeah, I didn't think I would write it, but um, I when I decided to, it's been a really beautiful experience, and it's kind of nice to even share it with friends and family who have gone, oh, God, <laughs> didn't, didn't quite know the extent of your experience. So it's, really, it's a really nice experience, and lots of people, regardless of their chronic illness, have been getting in touch and have had a very sort of similar, there, there's such a through line with my experience with other people, which is what I was hoping for, that there'd mm. be a heap of connection through what I've what I've gone through, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's it pretty cool, mate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's unseen: the secret world of chronic illness by Jacinta Parsons, and it's out now via a firm press. Jacinta, so great to chat to you. I'm pumped to be back on the yard. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R, 102.7. Stuart Harrison is an architect, lecturer, author of several books on housing and former co-presenter of Triple R's long-running show, The Architects. He currently hosts Restoration Australia, the third season of which is Sunday nights on the ABC. And to tell us about it, the broadcaster and historian joins us on the line now. Stuart, welcome back to Breakfasters. Daniel, everybody, how are you going? Good yeah, good, well. really good. You're now... You're meeting people who are taking on the challenge of uh, preserving the past while trying to create a family home for the future. Restorations notoriously take forever. How long are these episodes? How long are you in these people's lives? Somewhere between 50 to 60 years. (laughs) (laughs) On average. And some of them go longer and some of them are shorter. uh, When I started this, I'm I'm now 95. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, a, probably that's a factor of ten exaggeration. But mm. some of these we've been shooting for four years. Um, wow. Probably the average is about two years. Um, actually, the one that aired last Sunday um, was a year and a half, which is relatively quick. Mm. You know, and the show just you just keep making the show until until it's finished. Um, yeah. But yeah, the longest one is coming up, which is one in Ballarat, which is which was a full um, four years um, on on site. So, but some of them are. You know, can go longer than that as well. Yeah. 
so we've got we've got Ballarat, you say, that's coming up. We've been under the bridge, under Sydney Harbour Bridge. Mm-hmm. Where where else are we going this year? Well, it's good we're talking to you guys now because the Victorian ones are all happening in the middle of the season, which we're getting close to. So this coming uh, but this coming week, we're back to regional New South Wales, which is uh, where we've been uh, last week as well. But then episode four and five, um, episode four is up a, a great little project in Clydesdale, so in the kind of wider Dalesford sort of diaspora, um, and a great little restoration, actually almost a pure restoration, um, and then a, a nice little new building. Really great story, that one. Very humble, like, you know, very modest means, like super low budget. So that's great. And then we get to Ballarat the week after for the quite a different one, which is a very large transformation of the old Baptist church in central Ballarat um, in that street, of which I forget the name, which has got a heap of churches on it. It's actually right next to the ABC in Ballarat. And it's a, uh, it's the, it's, it's a full sort of up and down journey, that one. So they're the two Victorian episodes. So they're coming up before we have to go back to New South Wales, unfortunately, for some more episodes. <laughs> um, and you came out of the gate pretty uh pretty loudly uh and you can catch the first episode back on iview but these because uh, this is a sort of famous restoration isn't it at um mills point and yeah well what's really interesting about uh, miller's point is we've actually got two episodes in miller's point we've had one which was milton terrace which is the one you're referring to which was uh quite divisive um and, you know, you'd be, I'm always surprised um, just how divisive um, the sort of mild-mannered world of conservation can be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's sort of, you know, there are sort of um, extreme elements within the restoration movement. And the Milton Terrace one was quite upsetting for people because it was, as you alluded to, quite a big, um, very highly protected house in central Sydney, right under the um, Harbour Bridge, and then some people came along, Sydney people, lots of money um, and maybe not quite enough guidance and in the end restored the external, you know, the outside of it pretty well and then internally it sort of fell apart a bit. Mm. Well, it's, you know, I was reading about the couple uh, and they they have a um, a an 16-month-old black Russian terrier Mishka, which wears a multicolored Louis Vuitton silk scarf. Very Sydney, isn't it? It's it was a very. <laughs> I'm wearing uh, that right now. My my, my dog yes, and I. Well, yeah. He's he's listeners. We're just on mute as he deals with the domestic situation. Yeah, he's, he's left. <laughs> Empty chair, we're interviewing the poor guy. But yeah, Jill, you, you two, you both of you saw the episode. Yeah, saw the first episode. episode, And it was, yeah, it was one of those things where, oh man, yeah, just full on, full on Sydney. That couple, welcome back. Yes, full on, full on indeed. Lots of Sydney people, not a lot of, um, not a lot of taste, and um, maybe too much money. But you know, in the end, you could argue not a terrible outcome. No, but uh, yeah, I think. All of the rest of the season is basically a antidote to that episode. Mm. Wow. Uh, what about the idea of civic responsibility? Do you think it's always just impressive and a bit of a miracle when people feel a sense of civic responsibility for their home, to the community around them and to the state? Or uh, are you constantly offended by those who don't 
uh, take that to heart? Oh, probably both. I think I think one of the things that people come to an awareness of is that how all these buildings end up as houses, right? But they don't necessarily start as houses. So they often have, particularly in country towns, they often a really important part of the town. And we saw that in the Egan House episode a couple of days ago. And and I think people work out pretty quickly that they're actually working on behalf of the town as as much as their own needs. And I think when that happens, you get a lot of community buy-in. And I think that's just a really positive thing because, you know, buildings, a bit like the land, I guess, are kind of collectively owned to some extent. They, you know, there is a sense that, you know, you're a custodian of the building, particularly if it's quite significant in a town. And the best mental place to get to is I am sort of doing some work on this and I am just looking after it for a period of time and I'm, you know, protecting it. So as much as we sort of say it's for their future and their house it's actually also a wider civic idea as you allude to so and i think the best ones acknowledge that and realize that houses are often public buildings Mm. where do you look to for inspiration uh for design and architecture are you can you find it anywhere or do you have a bit of a bible or a couple apart from that sydney couple who else (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just call them up uh, and what they're looking at. Um, no, I, I – well, you know, travelling used to be – back when – I don't know if you remember um, – you <laughs> used to be able to go places and um, that was great. And, you know, so I managed to tra- – before you before it all ended, I managed to travel quite a lot, um, particularly when I was younger, and see a lot of things, whether it was – Southeast Asia or Italy or North America. And the best way to experience buildings is, you know, in the flesh. But, you know, you also look at magazines and, and inspiration and, and, and your peers. I mean, we have a very strong architectural scene here in Melbourne. And that's, you know, constantly inspiring to me to see other people do great work. What about when your advice isn't taken? Do you you like, oh, well, I thought it was a pretty good idea or, or you, are you philosophical about when oh, you... it's much like... It's much like my actual practice life. I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes your advice is taken, sometimes it's not. And that's, you know, you give advice, you give the best advice. I mean, the TV show is not primarily about me giving advice. Um, I think there were a couple of bits last no. where I did and that was really good. It was good to see. And, and I think people who haven't got somebody helping them professionally, it's good to help. But I don't get too, as you get older, you don't get too worried when people don't take your advice. But, you know, it's good when they do. Mm. Uh and what about uh, the the evocative nature of restoration? I noticed in uh, one episode, um, perhaps it was Egan House, there was a builder who was uncovering the cypress pine and it recalled for him what his dad used to come home from work smelling like. Uh, do you do? You, how often do you get that sort of heritage buzz just from your from making the show? All the time, really. It's particularly, sorry, particularly when it comes to materials, it's great to see materials that are getting re, reused and because there's so much quality sits within the material itself. <laughs> it's where Stuart's just, uh, again, back dealing with so. it. But, but one thing I... Uh, one thing I've found interesting also, and I'm not sure if he can hear me, but... Um, <laughs> We're listening. Oh, yeah. oh. 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 It's a sad challenge. All right, well, let's... Well, the... That's okay. Yeah, oh. that's all right. Oh, let's... Shall we wrap it up? <laughs> <laughs> that's... Uh... Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no, no. no, I think I think that's a good, great... And it's very satisfying to see materials reused particularly because the, the history does sit within the 
building material. So I think people people acknowledge that. What, what drives me a bit crazy is when people replace things and try and make them look like other mm. things. It mm. that doesn't necessarily work. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a fascinating uh, show. It's one of my pleasures, that's for sure. It's it's uh, Restoration Australia. It's on Sundays at 7.40pm on ABC and iView, and we've been speaking with uh, a distracted Stuart Harrison. Thanks very much, Stuart. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Stuart. Triple R. Yes, indeed, Talking Tech on a Tuesday. It's the um, accidentally illiterate of Vanessa DeHolka. Sorry about that, Vanessa. Went uh, full-blown Ellen Partridge there. Um, <laughs> what are you bringing in? Um, Jordan, Daniel Mon, great to see you. Uh, today I'm going to talk about vending machines because, <gasps> and they are super cool. Uh, <laughs> I hope you agree. So maybe it's because when you're a kid, you know, you've got a view of all these snacks, you can push buttons you know, your parents give you some money to put into them. There's mechanical thumps and whirs, and sometimes there's even a robot arm. I mean, they are cool little machines. And I think that there's a lot of childish glee in using them. So we've had a lot of different editions of Tech Talk where we talk about AI and privacy and all these really serious concepts facing us, and I just wanted to bring a bit of the joy in mm. technology advancing over years. So I looked up the history of the vending machine, had no idea. It actually goes back to 215 BC. What? Yeah, a Greek mathematician whose name was Hero of Alexandria, he invented a mechanical device that dispensed holy water with a coin. And while the coin was in the machine, it would it would release the holy water. And then when the coin slid off this little platform, it would be done releasing it. And they installed it in an Egyptian temple. What? How brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Get out. I know. So they started off mechanical and then in around 1615 in England, you start to see brass machines popping up in taverns where um, patrons can put in some coins and get tobacco. So mm. it's always democratic type of technology, a very accessible technology. Yeah. And I think that's probably why I love them. There are now about 15 million vending machines around the world and when we look at just the technology behind them, I think that what I love about that is that if it's in a vending machine, it is inherently cheap, um, it is robust, it's affordable to manufacture, and usually when new technologies are invented, they're expensive and only the richest people have them, and this is the complete opposite of that. This is, you know, they were designed for the masses. Mm. So about two decades ago, operators had to visit vending machines daily to check stock levels. So you'd meet someone and they'd be the soft drink vending machine maintenance guy who had to have great driving skills and great mechanical skills to solve any problems that they came across in their machines. And then a thing called te telemetry was invented. So it's a way of measuring data at a remote source and then transmitting that information, usually by radio, back to a head office. So, for example, your machines started telling you hey, I've run out of, you know, grape soda in this particular machine and you're going to have to come out here. And that's just a once-in-a-year occurrence because the grape just doesn't sell that much. <laughs> yeah. you know? But it just meant that people didn't have to, to check out these machines sometimes daily if they were in high-traffic areas. So kind of amazing things. And then features like accepting credit card payments are really cool, so near-field communication chips. They've had other sorts of sensors in them, so to figure out temperature sensors, you know, are things getting a bit too hot? 
um, tilt sensors, a bit like your pinball machine, you know, a kid's rocking this machine and trying to get the snacks out. That's no good. And the future holds even more for vending machines. So things like biometrics for payment might be an option, uh, different smartphone interactions, so, you know, paying through your phone or, you know, tying it to an app that says, hey, we recommend you get an energy drink after that run. <sighs> Energy-saving vending is what we're seeing. So if you go to some places like in Japan, you'll see beautiful little solar panels on top of your, you know, vending machine, your very robust vending machine that's out in all sorts of weather. And uh, that's just that's just incredible. Other innovations about enabling vendors to uh, repair machines remotely and that's happening more and more so that's all pretty cool but you know we really it, it, love can i can i stop you the the yeah. biometric did you say biometric payment yeah that could be a wave and so can you can you just recap what that would look like oh sure so biometrics would be any um body measure that was unique to you being used for payment so your face recognition your thumbprint getting a thumbs up from mom there. She's all on top of this. Right. Okay, sorry. I was sorry. more trying yeah. to mimic no, a thumbprint on the camera. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the, 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 there's a, there'd be a vending machine that would recognise you because you're such a repeat customer. If you, oh, imagine. If you decide that you to do that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. definitely in the potential future. Life's going well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Daniel. Would you like another hot dog? <laughs> <laughs> The usuals. Yeah. <laughs> really, they're there for us in our time of desperation, aren't they? I mean, mm. these are the things that are open when other places traditionally aren't open. So if you're a uni student in the labs late at night, if you're at a hospital, if you're in the middle of nowhere waiting for a train, the first train the next morning, these are the sorts of things that we rely on and that's mm. why it's kind of important. Now, we kind of love um, stories about hacking vending machines, but... To my uh, absolute disappointment, most of the stories you've ever heard are urban legends and you can't actually do a lot on that front. And really most hacks actually involve counterfeiting or vandalism or damaging machines. And so we don't want to encourage that. Um, if you are interested in hacking machines because, you know, you're a tech lover like me, there is a fabulous story you can look up about uh, in 2013 how a CIA vending machine, like one inside a CIA um, office, uh, was being a repeat target of, um, of stealing and they had to surveil their own employees to figure out how they were doing it. But that's, um, that's a little... <laughs> that's true. That's That really happened. Okay. So sorry to break that story down, but the, the CIA people were testing their skills on their own office vending machine? Oh, look, they just found a, a vulnerability and they were the sort of people who awesome. were you know, were trained to figure so that good. something out. And eventually a report got declassified that, that this knowledge public, which is fantastic. <laughs> when I was in primary school, we were told we could blue tack two five-cent pieces together to mimic a $2 coin. <laughs> I just lost a lot of five-cent pieces in blue tack. <laughs> you got some bad information. Yeah, bad intel. <laughs> but I think what's more interesting than actually all these stories about hacking vending machines is actually what they tell us, what they teach us about cybersecurity principles. Mm. And, you know, when we're looking at vulnerabilities and systems, you're looking at the hardware, you're looking at the software, you're looking at the social engineering of who's sharing information about how to get into these machines. And then there's this really fascinating area of how do you fix a problem without drawing attention to the vulnerability? You know, you can't put, put up a sign saying, hey, please don't do this because everyone else is going to do this. Mm. So that 
into the world of advisory notices, which are really tricky things to write in IT. And then how do you solve the problem without spending more money than it's costing you, like the cost of a pe- packet of chips. Yeah. So there's that sort of thing. So um, trying to have a balance between a system where the problems and solutions are proportionate is called creating a robust system. And that, you know, is a technical kind of cybersecurity term. You have to acknowledge that breaches are going to occur, you know, for everything that you plan for. There is a toddler that ends up inside some sort of toy vending machine and you go, well, just that one slipped through, right? <laughs> I think they are fascinating. There's so much fun to be had with them, but the technology behind them is actually pretty advanced and incredible. Um, I want to leave you with maybe some of the best vending machines in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. In Collingwood, rich, rich pickings. Plingen Guitar Tone, a music store there. Put a little tone shop vending machine out the front that has emergency guitar strings, picks, straps, drumsticks, patch leads, and the all-important 9-volt battery to put in your pedal. So if out of hours you are stuck, you can rock up there. Fantastic. Just around the corner in your little Japanese joint, Chotomoto on Wellington Street, there is a beautiful hacked beer vending machine and the staff there will give you coins so you can get your beer out of it. It's gorgeous. Excellent. Uh, and then for us lucky ones uh, a bit further north, Brunswick East, Market Lane, have a roasted coffee bean vending machine. When you need coffee anytime, you know, 24 hours, they've got you sorted. It's pretty brilliant stuff. God, that is a good awesome. tip. And uh, my only request is that if you see someone standing in front of a vending machine, don't approach them. Go away. They're having a moment. Don't put any pressure on them. It's it's one of the few calming things you can do if you're stressed out enough to have to be in front of a vending machine. Um, anyway, Vanessa, thanks very much, and we'll catch you uh, Wednesday, 7 o'clock, for Bite Into It. Absolute pleasure. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Uh, uh, Mon, uh, welcome to Breakfasters once again. Uh, this is, uh, you are filling in for Sarah while she's on mat leave. So you'll be with us for quite a few, a few months. Yeah, six months. So I thought it would, might be, um, good for the, for us and the listeners to, to get to know you a bit better. So I've, um, I've organised a little, little Q&A. Okay. Just a couple of questions. Just to get to know you a little bit better, like who is who is Mon? Who is she? She's she's lady from out on the patio, yeah. But loves Australian music, yes. What else? What else? <laughs> we know she supports the Bombers. That's true. Why? Yeah. Well, that would be my first question. Um, uh, how come? Yeah. Why do you support the Bombers? What's your origin story of being a Bomber supporter? Um, my parents are from. Near, or from Essendon and Mooney Ponds. So apparently there was a Sabir who played very early, like a Daniel Sabir who played for Essendon way back in like the, I don't know, I don't want to give a date because they'll be like, yeah, if I didn't exist then, you're stupid. But it was, <laughs> so it's in my blood. In, in, so a, a, a relative of you? Yeah, so my dad's side. Is there only one Sabir in Australia? Is well, that, it's, Is that your family? No, nah, there are a few, but I think um, the Daniel... This, the player comes from my lineage. That's what I've been told. I haven't chosen to look into it. All right. So you haven't tried for the um, – if like the Bombers get a women's team up, you don't know if that's enough to get you into I mean, the... I think he'd be like 200 now, so <laughs> he's 
Pretty no father-daughter rule. No. Nah. That's wise. There. My dad didn't make the cut, yeah. <laughs> uh, right, that's good. And second question, um, uh, what was your first job? Um, my first job was working at Priceline uh, Ooh, on fancy. the checkout. Yeah, yeah, when I was uh, in year nine and year ten. That's yeah. like a dream. That's like a chemist, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, well, there's like a chemist bit, but then they sell like... There's no drugs in there. No, nah, that's it. There's like beauty products and lollies and... That's a dream yeah. job for... Yeah, it was good. Some... Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did, how did you get that? Walked in with my resume. I mean, you know, it's a long time since I was 15, so things were different then. But I did just drop, do a resume drop. What did you have on your resume? Um, I think I had, I was the SRC representative and like what grade I'd got to in piano. <laughs> right. What do you have? Like that's the thing. What would you put on your resume? I can't even remember. What do you put oh, on your resume? I volunteered. I vol- mine was I love reading, yeah. going for walks and um, I volunteer. Um, I volunteer for some, I, I think I would do the, um, there was a door knock appeal. For some, for somebody, and I only did it because I knew at the end of the door knock that had um, hot dogs. <laughs> oh gosh! You leave that off the resume. Yeah. <laughs> Interests. Yeah, hot dogs. Charity work, hot dogs. <laughs> it was yeah the the Red Cross door door knock appeal, and you'd go or the and you go back and they'd go, oh, would you like a, a hot? Yes, please. Oh, I didn't even know you had them. I guess I'll have one. Mm. Did you did you peak at piano at that time? No, I did piano all through. I got to I got to up to grade eight, and then didn't do anything after that. And then I haven't really. There's a piano in my house, but I haven't really played it much. So, yeah, and yeah. I guess it didn't come up much at Priceline. They didn't say, "Yeah, can you be a singing <laughs> checkout girl?" <laughs> if I I think do you ever go to parties like like if there's a piano in the room? Um, and like, there's a few people sitting around. Were you just, were you, are you tempted to go over and just go, oh, what's this? And and then <laughs> anyone bang care out for a, a concerto? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I no. If I learnt the piano, that's exactly what I would be doing all the time. But haven't you been to enough parties where people do that, and it's annoying, and you think, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Oh, I also no, don't think you... I'm good enough to judge jump on a piano at a party. Yeah, but you you set the expectations low. See, I've done it. <laughs> or you go in and you go, oh, oh, what's oh, I'd love to be able to play the piano, and then just and then off you go. And yeah, because once people go, oh wow, then mm. then you're finished. So oh, okay. it's 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 a short thing. Like, yeah, yeah, have, get him in, leave him wanting more, get out. Oh, I'm you, gonna get another beer. Have, have you ever sat down next to someone who was playing the piano, and then you sort of like winked, and then you were yeah yeah, and then you're off, and then you fell in love. God, I wish. <laughs> But but, also, geez, I, oh, that's something I want to do now. <laughs> that's my new thing that I want to do. Just, just sit down next to someone while they're trying to play the piano. I just look look them right in the eyes <laughs> and go, this is beautiful what you're playing. This is great. I, I love this. Uh, oh, next question. Um, do, do you have any siblings? I do. I'm the youngest of three. Got a brother and a sister. Right, youngest. Yeah. There you go. 
And um, will they be listening to the show? But, yeah, I think my sister listens more to Triple R than my brother does. He only listens if um, my mum tells him to. Um, to listen to me. But they might be listening a bit this morning, so credit where it's due. And is is your older sister the cool one? No, I'm the cool one. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I already told you she hates Seinfeld. (laughs) Well, this is my my next question. Um, Did you watch Seinfeld with your family in the 90s? And if not, why not? (laughs) This is a stitch up. My... My sister, now, because my sister's six years older than me, so I was saying that everything your older sister says and your older brother says, you know, you're like, oh, well, they're the font of knowledge. Oh. So my sister said we weren't allowed to watch Seinfeld because everyone in it was too ugly. <laughs> <laughs> so we watched Friends because they weren't. Elaine is beautiful. Yeah, of course she, she is. I, this is, you know, what, 1997. I don't know. <laughs> Beauty standards have changed. Yeah. <laughs> so you so you never watched. I have yet. caught up since um, mm. when I've had, been able to make my own choices about what I watch. Yeah, but we got we're talking jeans and sneakers and yeah. you know, uh, ironically Kramer who was dressed, you know, supposed to be the worst dressed. His fashion is the only one to have held up. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Was that in the um, DVD? Comment? Yeah, that's why I stole <laughs> that from that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two more. Well, there was another, there was. Do you play an instrument? But we now know that is it just a piano? Do you play? Can you play anything else? Uh no, not really. Mainly piano. What was your What was your favourite subject in high school? English. Oh yep. Yeah. And uh, two more very important questions, and then we'll, th- that'll be it for now. Mm. There'll be more interrogation over the cu- upcoming months. <laughs> um, what's your favourite bird? I do love a um, a fairy wren. I love them. Yeah, they're very pretty. Yeah, I saw one over summer. We were staying down at the beach and went for a walk, like the Bush Rangers Bay walk or something. Anyway, saw a fairy wren, was very excited. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Uh, good answer. And um, last question, who is your, your favourite breakfaster? Oh, come on. <laughs> Not fair. Um, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> also, I got a message from my brother. He said, I'm listening. Thank you very much. So, um, oh. thank you, What's Carl. Your brother's name? Carl. Does Carl's he... actually a big, big Geraldine fan. Oh, so. get out, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Took him to your show last year. Oh, I remember. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, yeah, nice to see you again. Nice to hear from you. Great. Oh, uh, well, that wasn't, that was relatively pain free. So, um, you know? Yeah. Well, it was easy. I mean, when I got uh, hazed, it was finding out which Powerpuff girl I was. So <laughs> yeah, I've got to... <laughs> you got off easy. Yeah. I'll bring it back tomorrow. We'll find out which Powerpuff girl wants to be here. Dr. Jen, Dr. Jen, calling Dr. Jen, Dr. Jen, Dr. Jen, get up now. Um, welcome to Breakfasters. That gets stuck in my head every time, every week, Jen, because I'll go, I'll call Dr. Jen now. Calling Dr. Jen. Dr. Jen. And then you arrive. I'm 
so glad in the midst of all of the, you know, turmoil and upheaval, I can provide you with so much joy. Yeah. It's, it's a joy to have that song stuck in your head. Yeah. yeah. You know? Maybe we should revisit that topic of how to get earworms out of your head. We talked about it years ago, but maybe it's even more relevant. Yes, Aqua will not go away. Uh, what's, what's on your mind this week? I want to tell you about some really interesting research that I came across that came from a researcher here in Melbourne from RMIT, an economist called Dr. Leonora Rissey. I hope that's how you pronounce her name. So let's go back to 2013. Did any of you uh, read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In? No. All about the kind of, you know. It was everywhere, wasn't it? Mm. Oh, absolutely everywhere. And I have to admit, I never read it, but I certainly read a lot about it because it fired up a lot of people, made a lot of people uh, angry, got a lot of people talking. Essentially, you know, it's around this idea that we're all aware of that there are far fewer women than men in leadership positions and in senior positions. Uh, Women get paid less than men. We, We all know that and it really sucks. But um, Lenin argued that essentially it's because women need to be more confident. So Cheryl is essentially saying women don't have the same self-confidence and drive that men do, uh, and that's why we're not as uh, well represented at senior levels. And like so many women, it really annoyed me because you get the advice all the time, this whole thing, lean in, lean in, be more confident, put your hand up more, be more ambitious, get past all of the barriers that you're setting for yourself. And you know, if that basically argues that the root of gender equity is women themselves rather than any mm, systems mm. that we work in, which is really problematic. So I'm really excited about this study that has just come out because you guys know I'm all about evidence. I like to know the facts. And this economist went out and tried to, to look at some facts to see does more confidence actually predict greater job success. So she used a survey that people might have heard of. It's called the Hilda survey. I don't know if you guys heard of that. It's the um, Household Income and Labour Dynamics oh, yes. Australia survey. Yeah, yeah. So it started in 2001. It follows people through their whole lifetimes and there's about 17,000 people all around Australia involved and every year they get asked questions about their income and their education and their employment, their health, their relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a few questions in there that allowed uh, this researcher, Dr. Risse, to assign essentially how confident people are. So there's two parts to it. The first is called the hope for success. So people in this survey are asked questions like, um, how much do you agree with statements such as, I like situations in which I can find out how capable I am and I'm attracted to tasks that test my abilities. So essentially working out how do you feel about yourself? If you're challenged, do you feel optimistic about that or not? The second part of this measure of confidence was your fear of failure. So these were questions asking you, how much do you agree with a statement like, um, in difficult situations where a lot depends on me, I'm afraid of failing, or I feel uneasy undertaking a task if I'm not sure I'm going to succeed, things like that. So this research put those two things together to come up with a decent measure of confidence and then looked at the link between someone's confidence in a year and whether they got promoted in the following year in their job. It's a really neat measure. 
does being more confident mean you're more likely to get promoted? And of course, in the research, she took into account, you know, the job of, you know, job opportunities and all sorts of things. So it was a fair measure. And, you know, promotion seems to be a pretty good uh, measure of how successful you are at work, right? Because Mm -hmm. a promotion means you're going to get paid more, you're going to have more authority, more responsibility. And so in her research, it came out really clearly that yes, your hope for success and your confidence is strongly linked to a higher likelihood of promotion if you're a man. Wow. If you're a woman, there is no relationship. (gasps) What the hell? Yeah, like full on. So there is no evidence from this survey that as a woman, if you are more confident, that you are more likely to get promoted the following year. So women, it's not, not women's fault for not just wanting it enough. What a surprise. Exactly. So it's nothing to do with us having to become more confident or anything else. The other thing this survey showed really clearly was that men who are bold and charismatic and extroverted are also more likely to get promoted in the following year, but not for women. Mm. So being kind of out there and proud and confident and bold, that doesn't actually, in this study, there isn't good evidence to suggest that you, as a woman you are more likely to get promoted so we've got to move away and and you know I'm one of so many people making this call this is nothing new but it's more evidence to show that we need to move away from these arguments around let's fix women gender equity isn't about fixing women and how we go about doing things it's about changing workplaces you've got to stop asking women to be more like men dismantling structures that are, are unequal already surely Exactly. So I think this study is really interesting. And I guess it also makes the point that recruitment decisions shouldn't be made on things like charismatic you are. Mm. It should be made mm. on things like how competent you are and, and whether you have the skills that the job actually requires. So I guess, you know, we need workplaces to identify what are the skills that people actually need to perform well in this job and not be swayed by by personality characteristics that might be, you know, impressive on the surface but don't actually... Uh, predict whether you're going to do the job well enough. I've, kind of, I've noticed this a, a bit in comedy over the years is, you know, certainly back in the day it was, you know, a few years ago when this book came out and this is kind of a thing, it was like, you know, if if you're a woman and you wanted to get a gig, it was like you have to, you know, go out and ask for the gigs and, you know, hand the, the promoters and, you know, try and get on because that's what men would do. They would just... Yeah. You know, room bookers would just get constant emails going, hey, from from men going, yeah, I want a spot, I want a spot, you know, put me on. Um, and for years, bookers had this mindset of like, oh, we don't put women on because, you know, we don't know, they don't ask for the gigs, you know. Whereas either. now there's this transition into, um, you know, room bookers and, and stuff are, are kind of a bit more attuned into, Oh, hang on! I don't have a woman on, um, or I don't have a diverse lineup. You know, I will make an effort to do that. So, you know, I guess you know that comes back down to it's not the woman's fault that she's not getting yeah. the gig. You know, it's... and did you feel pressured, Jez, that it was all up to you to be contacting room bookers? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then it was like if if we were doing if a woman were hassling. Like you don't like I'll stop hassling for me for a gig. Like you'll get one when you when you deserve it, when we think you're ready, you know. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you like yeah, you're spot on. So great. 
thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just one study. It's in Australia. You know, I don't know how how um, swayed people around the world are by studies like this, but I just think it's really powerful to ask the the simple question: Does this lead to this? And look at the evidence. And in this case, no. Confidence mm. doesn't lead to promotion. Dead set. Chill Sandberg's going to have to write a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's been, been evidence mounting for a while. The other thing that came out of the study is that uh, if you um, looking about looking at um, managers and looking at who, you know how they feel about who they're promoting, it turns out that for men, expressing a fear of failure is linked to much weaker promotion prospects. So, you know, it's not just women who are harmed by gender norms. Mm-hmm. Men essentially shouldn't show weakness if they mm-hmm. want to be promoted, which yeah. I think is just as awful. I mean... Yeah. So it's in being too emotional or some, something? Is that what you mean, showing weakness? Like yeah, reacting yeah, to things like a human... A, a, Admitting that you you might be frightened about something or anxious mm-hmm. about something. So being emotional and saying, actually, I'm quite nervous about taking this task on because I'm not sure how well I'm going to do. Among men, that is predictive of, of weaker, like, you know, less likelihood of being promoted. So, you know, there's all sorts of issues in here around the gender norms that we subscribe to and they hurt everybody. Okay. And this, this study, can you... Who, who, led, who conducted this um, study again? So this is an economist who works at RMIT and her name is Dr. Leonora Risse. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, R-I-S-E. And yeah, you can find the paper. The paper was published in, I've just been reading the paper, it's pretty awesome. The paper was published in, it's a long paper, I'm scrolling to the top of it, <laughs> the Australian Journal of Economics. Okay, uh, But she wrote a piece in the conversation. I'll send you guys the link so you can share it on your social. She wrote a piece in the conversation all about it. So. Brilliant. Uh, th- thank you so much, Dr. Jen. Dr. Jen? Um, uh, <laughs> I'll stop leading in now, shall I? I'll leave back. <laughs> yeah, Lean back. Lean back. Triple R. Been a lot of um, local chat <clears throat> down here <clears throat> in Venus Bay about um, snakes because there's um, all might so or oh, heaps of snakes, heaps of tiger snakes around here, heaps yep. of them, heaps of them, um, and also, th- thankfully, there is a um, there's a snake catcher um, who had been posting on the local Facebook, you know, community group, just saying, you know, saying, yep, there's snakes around, they're not going to go near you, blah blah blah. But here's my number, mm. and just you know, giving a bit of you know. Background <clears throat> information, more information, less fear. That's what they say. Yeah, I um, guess. I guess straight off the bat, I'm thinking inside job. I mean, there's more snakes around. The snake catcher says I'm here. <laughs> for me, me. I don't know. Like, Trust like no. win- yeah, window menders throwing bricks through local businesses. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's just something to keep in mind. It's very point. Oh, I keep <laughs> Um, but it's 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 also it's one of those things where um, I'm like, oh yeah, cool, but absolutely do not want to, don't want to see one. Yeah, like you know, happy for them to to be around. Well, am I? <laughs> yeah, no, good on them. Um, but and I'm like constantly on my mind that I might see one that I don't and I don't want to. Um, but Kat saw one mm. just the other day. She was out. Um, walking her horse. I oh, know that's not. <laughs> that's that not, not, not it. It. 
she just was, you know, leading her horse, you know, wasn't riding it, but just kind of walking with it. Um, and then nearly stepped on it. Oh, yeah. <gasps> yeah. But it was like, it was a cold, like it was, you know, pretty cold day. So obviously wasn't super active, but it was just kind of lying there in the path. I'm like, well, what did you do to go away? And she went, nah, it just reared its head up and like. Oh, dear. And then she's all right, backed off and had to go go back the other way because it just wasn't wasn't moving off the path. I was like, oh. So you, you can't just. I mean, I've never seen a snake in the real in real life. You can't just step over it. I don't. I don't know what snake etiquette is. Can you just well, step over it? Like I a mean, jump rope. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if. Do you reckon you could step over no, a snake? No, I assume no that's absolutely would. wrong, but I just, like, don't know why you couldn't. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I mean, I, ch- chances are that a lot of people have stepped over snakes without realising it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think if you if you saw one. Of <laughs> <laughs> all the directions to go. <laughs> but it's really like. Want it. <laughs> you really want to be moving ahead for a reason. And should got to be a Mr. Whippy van in front of you or something. What if you're walking to work or something and you see a snake? You, you walk, <clears throat> you, but. <laughs> okay, not all of us that live in Venus Bay, Jardine. a situation <laughs> where you have to step over a snake. <laughs> I just think, because sometimes the advice I've heard is, oh, don't, don't move and let it. Let it like slither across across the path and let it go. Yeah. But then, how yeah. long are you supposed to stay there before like I really have to keep moving? Like I can't just Maybe. wait. Maybe in Zelda or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Kat, another time, Cat said she had one go over a foot once. Oh, yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Oh, yuck. Really quick, like it was. You know, oh, it just God. wanted to get to the you know, the crossbar, and it just yeah, it slid it. Yeah, I know. What, what um, um, do we know? What function the snakes in your area are serving in the ecosystem? Are they <laughs> what, what's the what's the case for snakes? Rodents, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the rodents. So, so if you um if you don't want, I've been you know reading up on stuff about mm. snakes because yeah, you want to clear clear your backyard of um. Uh, stuff, you get rid of the riders and the snakes might come. But, you know, um, but how's this? Uh, yesterday, um, a mate who lives down the road on their Facebook posted a picture of the most ginormous tiger snake in a tree. Oh, it was up, up the bloody tree. Like, <clears throat> here I am walking around going, oh, I'm looking at, like, most of the time I'm fine with what, you know, like, I'm like, it's unlikely that, you know, I'll, I'll see one and if I'm walking, they'll, it'll probably bugger off it if it hears me coming. Um, but I'm keeping an eye out for it on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> on the ground. But now it's up the bloody tree. Imagine I'm sorry. Imagine if a tiger snake Drop. fell I'm out sorry. of a tree. <laughs> Wow. And the, but she said she was she's working in there. She's got a, the most amazing um, veggie garden, and she was doing work in the veggie garden. It was the birds that warned her. Oh, oh my god! Yeah, god, this has been quite a rock. I think I've said oh my god about six times. <laughs> but what are the birds doing? 
Well, she said there was a huge cacophony of sound and and noise from the birds, and she and but you know, people were like, oh, the birds have they're upset about something. What could they be upset about? Look up, tiger snake in the tree. That's what you get upset about. I wonder what the tiger snake's doing there, trying to get a bird. Oh, oh or maybe you know potentially eggs, or you know trying trying to get a bloody. I feed, just don't mate. think it's fair that they're in the tree. I mean, we've got. We've got a pact. It's like you're allowed to be venomous and you can slither through the ground. And we're not yes. allowed to step over you. So. Yeah, but and we're not but the 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 trade off is you're not allowed to be have legs or be in the air. And yeah. then it, it, I feel up like they the, go. Yeah. Up they up they bloody go. Um which is, you know, it's terrifying. Um but then I you know, I thought, Oh, how many I wonder if there's ever been like a tiger snake that has fallen out of a tree like, and landed on someone and, you know, bitten them or whatever. Mm. So I Googled it. Um, mm. Thankfully, have not – or didn't go too far because I came across this story from a, um, a local paper in um, Kilmore, the North Central Review. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I love, like, local media – because the amount of detail in this story is something that you would not get anywhere else. Yeah. Um, so there was a, ki- a Kimmel couple. Um, they There was a tiger snake in their Christmas tree. <gasps> yeah. And so, but at first, at first, they first found it in the kitchen. Um, so Mr. Lee, John and Lynn Lee, um, received a visit from a tiger snake. Mr. Lee said he found found the snake in the kitchen when he went to make some lunch while wearing shorts and no shoes. See, it's the details. Beautiful detail. I just assumed the wife was pranking me because I've been watching people getting pranked on YouTube, so I thought it was a rubber <laughs> snake. And then it started moving, he said. Oh, God. So good. After, <laughs> after he, warning his mother-in-law... Get out of there, mate. Mr. Lee went back into the kitchen and watched the snake try to get into the pantry before retreating under the stove, by which point he had called the snake catcher. So the snake catcher comes round and goes, it went in under the oven and they took that oven apart (laughs) and then couldn't find it. (laughs) The oven out, couldn't find it. And then the snake catcher was like, oh, well, it's gone, and then went home. Oh, no. And then... This this family, without knowing where the tiger snake is, goes goes to bed. How do you, <laughs> how do, you do that? I would go. <laughs> oh well, tiger snake's gone. It's hard enough to go to sleep when you know there's a huntsman somewhere in the room. Yes, exactly. So they went. Oh well, we'll off, we'll, we'll pop into bed, <laughs> and then they said what we didn't know. It's between seeing it go under the stove and calling the snake man, it must have ducked around the wall and gone under the fridge, and then during the evening, it's made its way over to the Christmas tree. Oh. I went to bed at midnight and was just dozing off when my wife came flying in, saying oh. she found the snake under the Christmas tree, so I went out and it was curled up around the power point. So when Miss Lee went to turn the Christmas tree lights off, she oh. freaked out. <laughs> Towards the PowerPoint, and the snake rose up and hissed at her. This is a nightmare. <laughs> this is the worst Christmas. It's after midnight, but sure enough, he oh so yeah, and then he called. He said, "Miss, hang on, I missed a bit." So, um, 
uh, Mr. Lee came out into the living room and tried to scoop the snake into a rubbish bin. But the snake started to get aggressive. So we went, oh, I better call that snake catcher again. Um, and the snake catcher came round by that stage, and then the, so then the snake went up the tree, and then the snake catcher getting down just kept tapping the trees. He just kept tapping it, and it fell down and went over the corner and started to come around. He just got this squeegee thing and put it on its head and picked it up. Oh my god! It's got everything, doesn't it? Oh, so Mr. Lee said it was a reminder to keep the doors closed during summer when snakes were about. I'm pretty sure it's coming through the front door because Lynn and her mum sit out there for a coffee every morning, he said. It's not really the present you want under the tree. No. (laughs) Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. For Feature Creatures this week, we're joined by Simon Bugman Hinckley. Morning, Simon. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. good morning. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm good. So I'm good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, we were just chatting quickly off offline about um, a second COVID test yesterday. So uh, my eyes have stopped watering from the uh, the nose pro. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like a specimen in the museum? Actually, that's a very good point. It's, it's all very well to probe and prod other things, but it's not so pleasant when it happens to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what have you been looking at uh, bug-wise this week? Well, I was thinking we would have a look at pheromones. So basically pheromones are are chemicals that are produced by the body to influence behaviour within a species. So they come in a number of forms. So, I mean, the obvious one that the people would think of, I guess, is the one of the ones is the alarm or attack pheromone, which is something that is obviously an issue if you were to bump a European wasp nest. So in the event that the, the wasp feels threatened or it feels that the colony is threatened, they release a pheromone that encourages other individuals in the colony to become hyper-aggressive and to seek out and attack whatever is threatening the nest. Huh. So that's one sort of thing where it works really well for the species, but you don't want to be the person to accidentally sort of knock the nest. So there's the, the attack pheromone. But I guess when people think of pheromones, they often think of them more in terms of attracting a mate and it's something that's really commonly used in the moth world. So as we've sort of discussed a couple of times, the moth diversity is phenomenal in Australia. So we're looking at about 10,000 or so described species and probably that number again waiting to be described. And if you think about moths, they're predominantly nocturnal. So mostly flying around at night. How do you find a mate when it's dark? And often a lot of moths are camouflaged so that they might be brown or green to sort of blend in with bark or leaves. So flying around in the dark, the best way to find your mate is a sense of smell, so the release of pheromones. And that actually works right up to the biggest moth we have in Australia, which is the Hercules moth, which if you've ever seen uh, a shot of is an amazing moth found up in uh, northern Queensland, up in the rainforests. And they can be about 27 centimetres across for a wingspan. There are some records of... um, (laughs) Hang on, I just saw Mon make a face, and I thought maybe with um, Sarah being replaced I wouldn't get that face, but I just saw... It's a legacy face. I love butterflies, but that's all brown. Um, So... That you can get some up to 36 centimetres apparently, but sort of 30 centimetres is, is a good average. And what I find really interesting about these moths, these huge moths when they emerge, is they don't actually feed as adults. So they have non-functional mouth parts. So they only live for about 10, 14 days. So it's really all about finding a mate and reproducing before you're eaten or you die. 
And you can imagine in the rainforest, it's dense vegetation. Um, there's all sorts of things trying to eat you. So having really good pheromones is really critical. And it's interesting when you look at a male and a female moth, especially so a large one like the Hercules moth, you look at the antennae. The females have quite thread-like antennae and the males have, they look like combs. They're really, really large antennae. And the, the obvious point there is, I guess, larger antennae means a greater surface area and a greater surface area means that you can detect those pheromones, which might be tiny, tiny percentages of the atmosphere. And they can find them in up to about sort of two kilometres and sort of zoom through the rainforest to find the females. So it's, um, it's an amazing strategy that they've, they've developed there. They can, is, be... is, can I just quickly yes. ask, do you run out of, of pheromones? Oh. You don't run out of pheromones as long as you are, as long as the body is healthy. So, for example, I guess if you were, I imagine it's something like a snake venom, that, you know, a snake bites you, it, it takes some time to replenish, or a spider bites you, the venom can be reproduced. So the pheromone is released, it can be produced, but obviously if you're only living for sort of 10 days, you'll be releasing a burst at the start for maximum impact. And then as you sort of get a bit older and, you know, you're getting a bit decrepit and a bit run down, you'll be producing less and less and it'll be less successful. But, yeah, yeah it's not sort of like a reservoir, I think, that would sort of just empty you. The body has the ability to produce them. Mm. And they, they can be used against you. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that we've touched on in the past is the bird-dropping spider, which for Mon... Um, this was quite disappointing because when I turned up, um, Sarah and possibly Geraldine thought they were spiders <laughs> that caught and dropped birds. Yeah, that was it, me. I yeah. That. yeah. What is and, it? Well, Geraldine was quite disappointed to find it's a spider that looks like a piece of bird poo, which is quite a come down from imagining oh. a big spider that catches and drops <laughs> birds. That's yeah. a relief. <laughs> but these spiders are amazing because what they do is they release a pheromone that is designed to attract, the, it replicates the pheromone of a particular species of moth. So the male moth flies in thinking it's got a female moth to mate with and you've got a bird-dropping spider waiting for you with open arms. So the pheromones can be used against you and there are also species of insects that have worked out how to detect the pheromone of the species they parasitise and to zoom in and then lay their eggs on those species. So pheromones good but can be used against you in certain cases. Mm. Um one of the uh, and one of the things about pheromones that's also really really useful is in terms of us being able to use pheromones against insects as well. So, for example, if you think a lot of moth species, well, a small percentage of moth species will attack crops that we feed on. So we can use pesticides, which costly uh, insects can become resistant to, and of course. Pesticides can be quite a broad spectrum thing. So you will hopefully kill the pest species, but you might kill pollinators, all sorts of other things that you don't want to kill. So one of the things that a lot of research has been put towards is the use of uh, pheromones as an alternative to pesticides. So what you can do is you can flood, say, an orchard with um, pesticide with not pesticides, flood the orchard with like pheromones and it confuses the males. They're like, where's the female? Where's the female? It's sort of like you overstimulate them or they can't zoom in on the actual female because you've flooded it with pheromones. Or the other option is you can attract insects into a pheromone trap. So you can put out a trap with pheromones in and you, they fly in and they're trapped. It's not always a replacement for insecticides. But what it can do is also um, you don't want to drop your pesticides if the pests aren't there. 
So by having pheromone traps, you can actually go, oh, the adults are now flying because we've caught them in the traps. Now's the time to spray the pesticides. So it's a really good way of sort of um, helping to reduce pesticide use and hopefully, well, in some cases, maybe even negate it. Mm. But uh, it's just another way that we're sort of trying to use the insects' uh, attractants against them. It seems a bit cruel, doesn't it? It does seem a bit cruel, I guess, to be, to be playing with... Uh, the mechanisms of, of love, so to speak. <laughs> it's um, like yes. we're, we're catfishing moths. Uh, <laughs> we we are, and um, I was going to say one of the one of the really amazing ones that that really, I mean, it's not often that I just sort of go, well, it is actually quite often that I go, wow, how did that happen? But um, there's a particular moth that uh, it's called Creatinotus uh, gangus. If you Google tentacle moth, you will find this moth. It's an amazing critter. It, it occurs in Southeast Asia and in parts of Northern Australia. It's about four centimetres um, big. It's a, a beautiful brown with dark brown marks on the wings and the abdomen is orange or yellow with some black spots coming down it. Um, someone put some footage online about three years ago that really freaked out a lot of people. It has what are, the males have what are called coromata which I think comes from the Greek word for broom. And when you see an image of this, you'll you'll know why. So the coromata are organs that are contained within the abdomen and the male moth is able to avert these. So it like inflates them and it, they come out of the body and get blown up and they're very furry. And That's so if they, that can be longer than the abdomen and it looks like it's got these four hairy grey tentacles coming out of the end of the abdomen. And it's Fuck. a really... <laughs> It's the worst thing. Please don't look it up. <laughs> no, do it. <laughs> no, do, yeah, do it. It's, it's actually really, really amazing. And, and the reactions vary from, you know, there is no God to that's a really amazing, beautiful thing. So um, it, it's really just, it's amazing that, that this, this species has evolved to have these inflatable organs that it pumps out of its body covered in hair to release pheromones oh. to attract in the females. So it's... Um, it's just another, I guess, example of how amazing nature is with these sort of evolutions. Blimey. And this might be beyond the purview of research, but is these, say, even the attack pheromone, is it involuntary or is it like, let's go? It's it's <laughs> let's go. So the so if you were, for example, a European wasp nest in the ground, you inadvertently run over it with a lawnmower, um, which is a relatively common thing because often there's just a little hole in the ground. So unless you see the wasps going in and out. So you run over it. The wasp um, that's closest or that, that detects uh, a threat, obviously uh, its, its sort of insect brain will, will tell the, the glands to release the pheromone, which then incites all the others to swarm out of the nest, see what the, uh, um, the source of danger is and attack. So it's sort of, I guess it's, it's involuntary in the sense that it's all sort of operated by, by brain and stimuli, but it's, it's certainly the insect's body releasing the pheromones and then other insects responding to that to sort of deliberately attack a threat or an implied threat. We've had a um, text come through, just a generic moth question. Mm. Um, <clears throat> curious, if moths like light bulbs so much, why don't they fly near the sun in the daytime instead of snoozing on my kitchen walls? <laughs> That's actually, um, that, that is a good question. And if they, so basically if you fly during the day, most of our bird species are flying during the day and a lot of birds are insectivorous. So um, moths generally, there are day-flying moths, there are some really beautiful day-flying moths, uh, but a lot of moths have, have, have evolved to be nocturnal. You've obviously got your own risks at night. You've got things like owls, you've got bats, but you've got 
you've avoided all those birds that are flying around during the day. So uh, it's it's a survival strategy um, because obviously the leaves or the, the what they're feeding on is there during the day and the night. It's predominantly to be avoiding all those daytime predators. Goodness. So this tentacle moth Someone is... Um, texted and yeah, described it as every nightmare you've never had and that they're never unseeing <laughs> it. So don't say I didn't warn you, okay? It's yeah. gross. Oh, fascinating stuff. Um, Simon, when do you get the results back? Um, well, I'm hoping a couple of people at work had it done and it was within, within 24 hours because I'm not allowed to uh, go for a walk. I'm not allowed to – if I leave my room, I'm gloved up and masked up. So I'm hoping sometime today would be great. <laughs> okay. Good luck, mate. And uh, all right, Simon Hinckley, we'll chat again soon. Thanks very much. Triple R. You have been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.